I always give thanks to God for this opportunity to come and preach the Word. It's one of my special privileges that I enjoy from time to time as your associate pastor. It was my privilege back in June, the last Sunday of June, the 24th to be exact, to have the opportunity to introduce this sermon series on the core values of the Christian Missionary Alliance and how they apply to the core values that we have as a church where God has called us and placed us here in McHenry. It's talking about what we really call in the uh, CNMA our genetic code, our DNA. It describes us very succinctly and very uniquely because of what God has called us to do and where he has placed us, in particular this church, in this community, and where he has placed the CNMA in the world to boldly proclaim his message to all the nations, and to push back the darkness, as we say. So the description of what we're talking about here today has to do, as in conclusion, to the things that Paul had preached the last two Sundays as he talked about not only the core values, but the fourfold gospel, which is one of the unique things about the CNMA. And he talked about, in particular about Christ our healer and Christ our coming king. And I'm going to conclude this morning with the first two of those, first, the fourfold gospel, Christ our Savior and Christ our Sanctifier. We're going to also have a segment by John Soper, as we've had the last few Sundays, that so perfectly describes sanctification. I certainly don't need to try to, uh, to do it as well as he could, couldn't in a million years. But uh, he has done an adequate job, more than adequate job, of describing the uniqueness of Christ, our sanctifier. But let me talk for a few moments before we turn to the video about Christ, our Savior. If you have a discussion guide with you this morning, you'll notice that we have in point one, we say, because Jesus is my Savior, I have the benefit of all these things. And there's about 12 of them, to be exact. First of all, because Jesus is my Savior... My sins have been forgiven. It says in Colossians 1.14, In whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Also, as I've told my small group in many occasions, the best commentary on Colossians is Ephesians. The best commentary on Ephesians is Colossians. And it says in verse 7 of chapter 1 of Ephesians, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, According to the riches of his grace, and then on to the verse 8, it says, uh, which he's lavished on us. According to the riches of his grace, which he has lavished on us. Think about what that means. So therefore, as Jesus, our Savior, my sins have been forgiven because of him. Secondly, I have peace with God through my Lord Jesus Christ. And it says in Romans 5, 1, Therefore, having been justified by faith, I have peace with God. Also, I've obtained an introduction by faith into this grace in which it stands, and I exalt in hope of the glory of Christ, of the glory of God. So we have peace with God in accordance because the wrath of God has been satisfied by the sacrifice that Jesus made on the cross. And therefore, we have peace with God, though we richly deserve his wrath because of our disobedience, because of our sins. 
but because of the blood of Christ, we have peace. We also have been declared righteous, it says in Romans 5.18, for as through the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, even so through the obedience of the one, being Jesus, the many have been made righteous. His righteousness because of faith in him has been imputed to us, and we have right standing before God. That's justification. And we'll talk a little bit more about that later. Paul also said in, first, in 2 Corinthians 5.17 that I'm a new creation. And he said, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. He's given us the newness of life in Christ Jesus. I also have eternal life. And all of us know John 3.16, which says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. We have eternal life through Jesus Christ. Also then, we have been adopted as a son, a son of God, the unique standing of a son in the family of God. We've been adopted, and it says in Ephesians 1.5, He predestined us, He foreordained that we would be adopted as sons through Jesus Christ Himself according to the kind intention of His will. It was God's good intention, His kind intention, His benevolent intention that we would be adopted as His sons, whether we're, we're male or female, That's the privilege of sonship because of Jesus Christ and through what he has done. Also, God's Holy Spirit, therefore, indwells us. He lives in us. In Galatians 4, 6, it says, Because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Because we are sons, God has sent forth his Spirit. It also says in James 4, 5, Or do you think that the Scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously desires the Spirit which He has made to dwell in us. The Spirit of God indwells us because of God's grace and mercy toward us. Romans 5.5 says, And hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who is given to us. His Spirit has been given The love of God is in us because the Holy Spirit, bearing testimony of Jesus, has been indwelling us, is indwelling us. Next, we have Jesus Christ as an advocate. And it says in 1 John 2, 1, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Think about this for a moment. An advocate... One who stands before the throne of the living God on our behalf and intercedes for us and bears witness for us that we are his. What a wonderful thought it is that we have an everlasting advocate with God the Father. Also, nothing can separate me from the love of God because Jesus is my Savior. In Romans 8.35 it says, Who will separate us from the love of God, the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress 
or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword. And then he concludes in verse 38, For I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. What an incredible promise. Nothing can separate us from God's love because Jesus is our Savior. Death also has no power, long, has no longer any power over me. It says in 1 Corinthians 5.54, But when this perishable will have put on imperishable, and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about this saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the, the victory through Jesus Christ our Lord. Death no longer has power over us, because we believe and we worship a resurrected Savior who is even now at the right hand of God. I also have an inheritance that will never perish. And the Apostle Peter wrote in his first letter in chapter 1, verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. This is what we have in Christ our Savior. We have an inheritance that is imperishable and undefiled and will never fade away. Lastly, we, because of Jesus Christ our Savior, We've been saved by grace through faith. In Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10, it says this, For by grace you are saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works that anyone would boast, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God ordained beforehand that we would walk in them. By grace you are saved through faith. It was my privilege a few months ago to preach a sermon on this very topic of saving faith, saving grace. Because it all comes from God. We have nothing to do with it at all. All we need do is believe, to say yes to the truth that God has revealed to us, to believe on Jesus Christ. He By grace, his unmerited favor has made it possible for us to be saved. Our salvation comes through him, and it comes through faith. And even that is not of ourselves. The faith that we believe on comes from him. It is the gift of God. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. So what glorious things he has done for us, As Christ our Savior, there is no other name given among men whereby we might be saved except the name of Jesus Christ. He indeed is our Lord and our Savior. 
Now let's talk for a, for a while about sanctification. And I invite you to listen to the words of John Soper as he talks a little bit about this, and then I'll conclude the sermon talking about what should be the normal Christian life. But let's hear first of all from John Soper. One day, a number of years ago, Makanzu, a student at a Bible college in the Congo, approached his teacher, an Alliance missionary. Mademoiselle Spriggins, I'm preparing to become a pastor, but I live a miserable life. I have no joy, no peace, no zeal. How can I win people to Christ if it is to live this kind of life? Although Makanzu knew Jesus Christ as his Savior, he had no idea of what it meant to walk in the fullness of the Spirit. After examining the scripture with his teacher, Makanzu felt convicted of his need to live not by the flesh, but by the Spirit. He prayed and asked God to show him what needed to change in his life. And God revealed several areas in Makanzu's life that were not fully surrendered to the Spirit. He confessed to his teacher that he had cheated in his studies, and to another professor whose class he had disrupted. He confessed to his wife that he had a hidden stash of pornography, which he then proceeded to destroy. Obedience to the Spirit severed the enemy's hold upon the Kanzu, and his joy, his zeal, and power returned. The rains have come, he exclaimed. And he went on to lead thousands of men and women in his country to the Lord. It all started with a simple act of obedience. Friends, this is the essence of sanctification, the work that God wants to do through His Spirit to mold us into the very image of Christ as we submit our lives fully to His control. One of the great distinguishing marks of the Christian and Missionary Alliance is the insistence that by the power of the Holy Spirit, Jesus Christ not only lives in us, but He lives through us. In our next study, we'll learn more about how this happens as we encounter Jesus Christ, our Sanctifier. Hello again. I'm very excited to be with you once again to talk about CNMA DNA and in particular about the second point of the fourfold gospel, Jesus Christ, our Sanctifier. The great distinctive of the CMA is its laser-sharp focus on Jesus Christ as expressed in the fourfold gospel. He's our Savior, our Sanctifier, our Healer, and our Coming King. Now, when we begin to speak of Him as Savior, nearly every evangelical Christian has a fairly good idea of what we mean. And there's a large amount of agreement across denominational lines on this necessity of having an experience of Christ as our Savior. We may even expect, with some degree of certainty, that most Christians will agree about how one becomes a follower of Jesus. The words, by grace through faith, come easily to mind. But when we begin to speak of Christ as our sanctifier, as Paul does in 1 Corinthians 1.30 where he says, it is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God, that is, our righteousness, our holiness, and our redemption, that there is considerably less agreement and far more confusion. 
Perhaps the best way for us to begin today is to notice that when the New Testament writers talk about salvation, the salvation that's ours in Christ, they they do so in three different ways. Sometimes, in fact, most of the time, they speak in the past tense. They tell us that we have been saved. Past tense. An action that has been completed. They are pointing to a time in history when Because we've repented of our sins and placed our faith and trust in Jesus, we passed from death into life. We were slaves to sin. Then, at a particular point in time, the point at which we exercised faith in Christ, we became instead the children of God. Theologians call that aspect of our salvation justification. God declared us to be not guilty. At other times, however, when the New Testament talks about our salvation... It uses the present tense and says, in effect, we are being saved. Now, these passages, like the one in the book of Philippians that says, we should work out our salvation with fear and trembling, underscore the fact that even though we have been declared by God to be righteous, there is a process going on in our lives, a process governed by the work of the Holy Spirit who lives in us and who, by our willingness to submit our lives fully to his control, makes us over into the likeness of Jesus Christ, who is our older brother. Now, you may wish to reference Romans 8.29 to understand what he's trying to do in our lives. He's making us more like Jesus. This ongoing process is called by the theologian sanctification. To put it simply, God wants to make us in reality what we've already been declared to be in Christ. And then finally, there are times when the writers of the New Testament talk about salvation as something that is still in the future. We will be saved, Peter says in the first chapter of his epistle. He says, we're waiting for a salvation that is to be revealed at the last time. Now that's what the theologians call glorification. That will happen when we're with Christ in eternity. And then we will be as much like Jesus as a created being can ever become. He'll still be God, we'll still be creatures, but we will be perfect creatures, made over in His image. Now today I want to talk to you about salvation in the present tense, about sanctification, about that process that uh, makes us more and more and more like Jesus. The Gospel of John records the words of John the Baptist on a day very early in the ministry of Christ. When John, seeing Jesus walking down the road, proclaimed, Look, there's the Lamb of God, the one who takes away the sins of the world. In this statement, perhaps looking back upon the experience of Israel on the night of the Passover, John clearly casts Jesus in his role as Savior. But just a few sentences later, John makes a second statement about Jesus. This, he says, is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. And with that declaration, John announced that Jesus is also our sanctifier. Now, while not all Christians agree on this point, it seems clear enough to me that John the Baptist understood from the very beginning that there were not one, but two great gifts that Jesus came to bring his people. Salvation and sanctification. Those two gifts are related. But the sad reality is that while every Christian understands and experiences the first, Many Christians neither understand nor ever really experience the second. 
The results of that deficiency are crippling to the spiritual life. Without the experience of Christ as sanctifier, we are condemned to an ongoing and unsuccessful struggle against sin. The desire to separate, and that's the root meaning of the word sanctify, from sin, exists. But there is no power to achieve it. Listen to these words from Romans chapter 7. Paul says, What I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. For I have the desire to do what's good, but I cannot carry it out. For what I do is not the good I want to do. No, the evil that I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Does that sound at all familiar? Does it sound like somebody you know? Maybe it's even your own experience. And if that is so, then you need to know Jesus not only as your Savior, but as your sanctifier as well. Without the experience of Christ as our sanctifier, there's a lack of power in our lives and ministry. We embark upon tasks that are designed to serve God and to spread the love of Christ to others. But there is no real power in what we do. The presence and power of God, which were so evident in the lives of the early Christians, and in the lives of many of Christ's servants today as well, is somehow missing. And people do not know that God is with us in any special way at all. Another thing that's often missing in the lives of those who have yet to experience the reality of Christ as sanctifier is a lack of assurance of salvation. They know the Bible promises that all who believe in Christ have been adopted as sons and daughters of the King, but they don't feel it. And often they wonder if their relationship to Christ has any reality at all. That's often accompanied by a corresponding lack of joy in their walk with Christ. Let me try to explain this another way. When we know Christ as Savior, we experience the reality of deliverance from the penalty of sin. But when we know Him as Sanctifier, we are delivered all But sanctification, that brings freedom to live in the power of the Spirit. The first great gift of Christ releases us from the guilt of our past. But the second equips us to resist the temptations of the future. If God, because of the finished work of Christ, has forgiven me from all the sins of the past, but if I have a way to resist the temptations and failures that confront me in the present, then my salvation is experience. Because He is not only my Savior, but my sanctifier as well. But at the time of sanctification, Christ begins to live through us. Because now we are filled with the Holy Spirit. Friends, even a cursory reading in the New Testament should be enough to convince us that there are different kinds of Christians. In 1 Corinthians 3, 1-4, Paul calls them spiritual and worldly. In Romans 7 and 8, he distinguishes between believers who are self-propelled and the ones who are spirit-driven. In Ephesians 5.18, the distinction is between being filled or not filled. It's been argued that in normal experience, every believer all the teaching of God's word on these subjects, that would probably be so. There's no reason why it couldn't be that way. Our experience, however, and apparently that of the writers of Scripture, suggests that for most of us, Christ as sanctifier comes later. It's an experience that we have to seek. 
But the promise of the Savior is that the Father in heaven will give the Holy Spirit to all who ask him. I'm going to come back to that verse in Luke chapter 11 later on. It's not hard to recognize experiencing the reality of the Spirit-filled life. That person lives in victory. And And his or her life is full of the joy of the Lord. So why is the reality of sanctification? I think there are at least four reasons given by the New Testament writers why it is not the one. The first is plain ignorance. There are some Christians who do not even realize that a life that is full of the Holy Spirit, a life of Christ living not just in, but us, is even possible. Perhaps their churches don't teach this truth. Maybe that the kind of life exemplified by the early Christians is still available to those of us who live in the 21st century. Fear can also keep us from experiencing that reality. We never like to surrender control. But that is what being filled spirits or make us look or visit us with some kind of manifestation that we would not like to have. The Bible says that we can quench his power in our lives. Now sin can also there's some area of our life that we refuse to surrender to Him, or some sin that we love too much to repent and satisfaction or apathy is another natural enemy of sanctification. We hunger and thirst after righteousness, like Jesus talks about in Matthew chapter 5. It'll never come to us. I'm pretty sure that the single biggest reason that most Christians never experience all that Christ means to have of himself is simply because they just don't want it badly enough. Or they don't know him badly enough to become available to receive more of his life. Our lives in Christ are often much poorer than he intends them to be. The fullness of Christ in us, the hope of glory will never be ours until we know him, not only as Savior, but also as our sanctifier. Now as we close, I want to leave you with four simple words. And the first word is thirst. If anyone is hungry and thirsty for the Spirit of Christ, he can have it. Jesus said on one great day of the feast, If anyone is thirsty... Let him come to me and drink. And John tells us that he was specifically talking about the Holy Spirit. So we need to be thirsty. The second word is ask. A little while ago I referred to a verse in Luke chapter 11 where Luke tells us that Jesus said that the Father is a good Father. And just like we know how to give good gifts to our children, He wants to give good gifts to us. And then Jesus said, the Father is ready to give the Holy Spirit, the fullness of the Holy Spirit, to anyone who asks. The third word is the word surrender. In Romans 6 and again in Romans chapter 12, Paul talks to us about surrendering our lives in an act of commitment, an act of dedication. In Romans 6 he says, reckon yourselves to be dead to sin but alive to Christ. 
And in Romans 12, he says, we need to commit our lives as a living sacrifice to Christ. Surrender. The final word I want to leave with you is the word abide. That's found in the 15th chapter of the book of John, in that wonderful analogy of the vine and the branches. And Jesus says the secret to maintaining the fullness of the Holy Spirit, the secret to maintaining the abundance of the life that Christ wants to live in us, is that we need to abide in Him. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, you can ask for whatever you want in my name, and I'll give it. You'll have much power. You'll bear much fruit. And then he says, and your joy will be complete. Jesus, he's not just our Savior. He wants to be our sanctifier. You might recall, back in 2007-2008, our pastor preached uh, over a year's worth of sermons on Romans. I think the Apostle Paul's greatest doctrinal treatise that he ever wrote. And shedding light on Christ our Savior and Christ our Sanctifier. I can remember uh, at that same time that Paul was doing that, I had the opportunity and the privilege to read a book by Watchman Nee called The Normal Christian Life. And really, it was an exposition of Romans. And in that book, The Normal Christian Life, Watchman Nee, and I shared this, by the way, those first two Sundays of uh, January 2009, because I wanted, and I just desired as I was reading through this and Paul was preaching through this, I thought, Lord, I would love to have the opportunity to talk about the lessons I've learned from Romans. And it regarded these two things. And then on top of all that, as I, as most of you know, as I'm preparing for ordination, uh, I'm charged with writing some papers, and the very first two were about Christ our Savior and Christ our Sanctifier. And uh, having not, as I had mentioned in the first service, having not written a paper since about 1964... It was really a challenge uh, to get into this and to do this, and uh, but yet it was a blessing beyond comprehension. Because it, re- it reinforced this whole thing that Watchman Nee said in his book, The Normal Christian Life. He didn't call it the higher Christian life, or the deeper Christian life, or the abundant Christian life. He called it the normal Christian life, because I believe, like he does, God intends for us to live this way so that we know the normal Christian life. It's the normal thing to do. It's not extraordinary. It's what God intended for us. There is a natural division that occurs in the first eight chapters of Romans. And I would challenge you to get out your Bibles and look through it in this way. From verse 1 of chapter 1 to verse 11 of chapter 5, that natural division deals with the blood of Jesus And it talks about uh, our salvation. It's Christ our sanctifier in ever since the word. It deals with the justification by faith. 
And beginning then in chapter 5, verse 12, through the end of chapter 8, verse 39, it deals with Christ, uh, the cross of Christ, the blood of Christ, the cross of Christ. It's God's, as, as Watchman Nee calls it, God's dual remedy for our sins. The first half deals with sins, plural. Those acts that we have committed against God, those transgressions, that, those things of disobedience that we have done, and in my case, too numerous to even begin to consider to number, but those things we have been forgiven of. By the blood of Jesus, it has been forgiven. And it says in Romans 8, verses 9, or pardon me, Romans 5, verses 8 through 9, But God demonstrates his own love before us, or toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more then, having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. And it deals with the blood of Christ. And in that blood, we have been delivered from the penalty of our sins. That's what it's, and it's what... John Soper mentioned in his, in his segment, we are delivered from the penalty of sin. In the second half of that natural division, beginning in chapter 5, verse 12, through the end of chapter 8, it talks about being delivered from the power of sin. The power of sin, singular. The first half deals with sins, plural. The second half deals with sin, singular. And it talks about our sin nature. I want you to imagine just for a moment, I wish I had the video, but I don't, um, of a diagram, an illustration of four boxes or four rectangles. Uh, The top one would be called our surface problems. The second one would be called our surface causes. And then the third one from the top would be called our root problems. And the very last one at the bottom would be called our root causes. I hope you can imagine that. Surface problems, surface causes, root root problems, root causes. And And I saw this illustration many years ago in a spiritual application, but I also saw it in a business application. Because we have a tendency of just addressing the top two boxes of the diagram. We talk about surface problems and surface causes. We talk about surface problems because what they really are are symptoms. And we try to deal with those symptoms in ways to rectify them. And that's the surface problems that we're addressing. But we never get down to the the root problems and the root causes. And I'll, I'll submit this to you. As I was reading through Watchman Nee's book and reading through Romans, I began to understand that what we were really dealing with is that the blood of Christ deals with the surface problems, where the cross of Christ deals with the, uh, pardon me, I said the root problems, the, the, the cross of Christ deals with the root causes. And I'll submit this to you. In Romans 6, 6 it says, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. So, we've been delivered by the blood of Jesus from the wrath of God, and we have salvation through justification by faith. 
the blood of Christ. And the other dual remedy is the cross of Christ. Knowing this, that the old self has been put to death. Sin no longer has power over us. We've been delivered from the power of sin by the cross of Christ. This is God's dual remedy. As John Soper had four things that you could do. Thirst, ask, surrender, abide. So Watchman Nee said there are four things, that's four steps that you can do to experience the normal Christian life. And I would submit to you, first of all, knowing. If you look in chapter 6, if you just open your Bibles for a minute. Look at Romans chapter 6 for just a second. And if you'd focused on nothing but just Romans 6, you will be blessed beyond comprehension for sure, because this unlocks a lot of what Watchman Nee is saying. He says, in verse 6 of chapter 6, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might might be done away with so that we no longer would be slaves to sin. Knowing. That's the first thing, knowing. If you want to experience the Christian life, know this, that the old self has been, not will be, but has been crucified with Christ so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. The second thing he says is reckoning. And if you look at verse 11, in the New American Standard, it says, even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Even so, likewise, in the same way, reckon yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to Christ. Why does he say reckon? This is the, obviously, since Watchman Nee was reading the the old King James, he used that word reckon, but it's a great word because it has significance to it. It's an accounting term. And it talks about the settling of accounts once and for all. A final settlement. And this is what we're talking about here. Knowing this, that the old self has been crucified with Christ. I know I can consider and reckon myself to no longer be alive to sin, but yet dead to it. I'm dead to sin. Instead, I'm now alive to Christ Jesus. The third thing is presenting. And this is certainly in agreement with what John Soper said about surrendering, presenting. And this you'll find in the second half of verse 13. It says, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness of God. Present. He also said in verse 1 of chapter 12, I beseech you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies As a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service of worship. And do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds. Present your bodies as living sacrifice. So we know, because God has told us the truth, the old selves have been crucified. We consider or reckon ourselves now dead to sin and present ourselves as Alive to Christ and dead to sin. And then over in chapter 8, the conclusion in verses 4 and 5 says this. 
so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Kind of saying what's implied. We do not walk according to the flesh, but we walk according to the Spirit. In verse 5, for those who walk, if you will, continuing the same thought, those who are walking according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are according, are walking according to the Spirit, set their minds on the things of the Spirit. And this is what God has encouraged us to do. This is the same thing that Soper was talking about when he said, abiding. Thirst, ask, surrender, abide. Knowing, reckoning, presenting, walking. This is kind of how Watchman Nee said it. So what purpose is all of this? An understanding Christ our Savior and Christ our Sanctifier. As Paul said in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, in this body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. I have been crucified with Christ. This is our sanctification. And this is where we experience the normal Christian life, as God in Christ has expected us to and desires for us to, to know fully Christ, our sanctifier, because he's not only our Savior, he is our sanctifier. The process of God's indwelling Holy Spirit in us is striving to make us day by day more like Jesus. This is our sanctification. This is a glorious experience. Let us pray. Father, we thank you so much for the promises of your word, for its truth, for it's eternally true. And Lord, as it was spoken first, God, so it is today. It is true, and so it shall be forever, for your word is forever. Father, we thank you for that truth that Jesus Christ is not only our Savior, and we thank you so much for that salvation, so rich and so pure, so glorious, so free. For by grace we have been saved through faith, and that not of ourselves. It is your gift to us. Lord God, we thank you for our sanctification in Christ Jesus. That your Holy Spirit indwells us now, bearing witness of your Spirit, that we might know your truth and the truth might set us free. Lord, help us to live day by day, moment by moment, according to the perfect purpose of your word, that Christ in us might be seen, that we might be able to say with the Apostle Paul, we have been crucified with Christ and it is no longer we who live, but Christ is living in us. And the life we are now living in this flesh, we live by faith in him, Jesus, who loved us and gave himself up for us. Father, thank you so much for the, for the perfection of your word. It's perfect in every way. Thank you, Lord, for our sanctification as well as our salvation. We ask it now in the name of Jesus. Amen.